How does one produce and share research that engages different audiences? From the subjects or the people we study, to our colleagues, to the funders, to policymakers, even to Congress. About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Yonaira Rivera in El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I'm delighted to have here uh, with us today Yonaira Rivera. Yonaira is a, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication, the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University, where she started last year. Uh, shortly after finishing her PhD uh, that she did at Johns Hopkins University in the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Before that, she got a master's degree in public health at Emory University. And before that, she completed her bachelor's uh, of science in biotechnology at Rutgers. So she has returned to her alma mater as professor. Um, uh, in between uh, her BA and finishing her PhD, she also had a very extensive career as a practitioner in public health. Um, she uh, has received very important awards, a number of grants as publications, has recently testified to the US Congress, is one of the leading voices at the intersection of Latino issues, uh, public health, communication, and digital media. So it is a pleasure to have you with us today, Yonaira. Welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you, Pablo. That was so sweet. I, I appreciate that introduction. Um, I'm very, very, very happy to be here. My pleasure for the introduction, and we are delighted to have you here. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? How was the, the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? <laughs> That's a really loaded question. <laughs> I have, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it as, as brief as possible, but I think it's been a really windy and unexpected journey. Um, I always knew that I wanted to be a professor. I don't really know why. I just always knew that I wanted a PhD. Um, and my journey actually started in high school. I'm a very, very huge advocate for programs at universities that focus on training and giving opportunities to minority students and underrepresented students because that's what showed me that I wanted to be a scientist. Um, I actually participated at the University of Illinois um, Research Apprentice Program at Urbana-Champaign the summer of my, between my 
um, freshman and sophomore year in high school, and then the summer between my sophomore and junior year. Then I went to Cornell to do more research that other summer. So for me, it was like, okay, there's this thing, research, but it was bench sciences. That's all that I thought was out there. Um, and I ended up going to Rutgers because it was, don't tell anyone, but it was because it was the closest school that I applied to, to New York City. <laughs> so I was like, okay, biotechnology and, and I loved it and I loved research. But the last year that I was at Rutgers, Hurricane Katrina happened. And um, I went to do hurricane relief work that spring break. And while I was there, I realized I love science, but I love talking and educating people even more. So when I was there, I said, okay, I want to pivot into public health. So I did work. I, I did some research in, in avian influenza to kind of do that transition and then kind of fell into public health and health communication. And, and now I'm studying health misinformation. Um, but the goal was always to stay in academia. Um, I love seeking knowledge and mentoring. So it's, it's the perfect um, combination of all the things that I'm passionate about. Excellent. So, so after Katrina, you went to work in public health. Um, how did you transition to a PhD? And how did you transition then from PhD in public health to more the communication side of things? Yeah, that's a great question. So after Katrina, I worked for um, a little bit over a year and a half uh, with the Food and Drug Administration doing avian influenza research and applying to uh, MPH programs. So I went to Emory. And when I was at Emory, I had the pleasure of getting exposed to HealthCom. Again, more from this public health perspective. Um, but then I also worked at the CDC while I was there. And I had a fantastic mentor. And I want to just say this now, Pablo, mentoring. I'm where I am because I've had people that believed in me and helped me accept, like, right, to get to the next step. And none of them were Latinas, um, but they were all there and present. and they gave me that those opportunities to be able to now do that. So I just wanted to, to bring that up really quickly. Um, and so I, so I finished my master's in public health and I, I went to work in Tampa for five years. And that's where I had more of the hands-on practitioner work. I worked for local county government. I worked as a health educator and doing research in both roles. And that's, you know, I, I knew it was like, okay, this is a this is a pause until I start my PhD because I knew that I wanted to, to get a doctorate degree. Um, upon returning to school and, and getting my PhD at Hopkins, it was clear to me that I wanted to stay in academia. Um, because like I said, it just really merges um, not just the, the, you know, consistent and constant act acquisition of new knowledge and creation of knowledge but also it's a it's a way to help my community by doing research that is public facing and research that really gets to the core issues that the latino community needs addressed and i have a i have a leverage and a power as a researcher and and now as a faculty member to ensure that the work that I do is not just doing research for research's sake, but has translation 
into into better outcomes. Um, so to the second part of your question, while I was doing my PhD at Johns Hopkins, I knew that that um, intersection of public health and communication was really important. Um, before I started my, my PhD, I was a health educator for a cancer center. And I worked through the National Cancer Institutes and, and I understood that they were really emphasizing the importance of understanding and leveraging social media and new media as a way to educate and provide information to minority groups so that they can make better health decisions. And while I was at Hopkins, I said, you know, we keep looking at um, how do we how do we deliver information on social media, but we need to understand what people are actually engaging with. We need to understand from a health perspective, which I would say that was maybe not um, as as common of a conversation back when I started my PhD. What are we competing against in terms of misinformation? Um, and that's where I said, well, you know, I have this public health background, but I really want to make sure that I am that I am tapping into calm theories, that I'm tapping into um, social media research methods outside of the scope of public health to bring them into the work that we need to be moving towards in public health. Um, and and yeah, and I graduated last year and and transitioned straight into this amazing position as assistant professor over at, at the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers. Um, they have great health comm scholars there and I'm really excited to be able to bring an interdisciplinary perspective. Excellent. So, so Hopkins doesn't have a comm department. Um, how did you manage to bring that expertise into your PhD? Because you were outside of a comm department in a university that doesn't have one. So in practice, how did you do that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the department where I got my, my doctorate from Health Behavior and Society has um, several interdisciplinary scholars and a lot of the health communication related work that happens within Bloomberg School of Public Health tends to emerge from faculty within that particular department. So there were several faculty members that were traditionally trained in communication that are now at this particular and, and other departments within Bloomberg. However, there were two other opportunities that I think I really wanted to um, leverage and maximize while I was at Hopkins. One, they have an exchange program with Annenberg um, School of Communication at UPenn. And I went to take courses there in political sciences and digital media. Again, this was back in 2016, 17, when conversations about, health, uh, about misinformation were a lot more about fake news and misinformation, political misinformation within this polarized social media context. So I wanted to tap into what are what are you guys talking about that we're missing in public health? Um, and then I had the privilege of going to the Oxford Internet Institute summer doctoral program the summer of 2018. And that I think was a very formative moment for me to be able to engage with other doctoral students from across the world 
from different disciplines that were thinking very creatively and innovatively regarding how do we address a lot of these issues that we see related to internet research right now. Um, so that was also like, I, I tried to complement my training knowing that I was getting a depth of public health, cancer communication scholarship within Hopkins, but then adding extra from outside, which is why I always encourage students um, and, and peers to look into and talk to as many faculty members and, and mentors and advisors as you can, because there are opportunities that if you're creative, you're able to kind of tap into with different resources um, that will make you a more well-rounded um, scholar if you're at that intersection. Okay, and so who did you who did you study with at uh, Penn? I um, was I took a course with Sandra Gonzalez Bailon. Of course, okay. And she's phenomenal. I love her. She's fantastic. Thank she you some really great research, but again, from a very different perspective. And I think that um, the work that we do, mm -hmm. um, digital media work, and again, I'm coming from the health context, it's it, it needs to be, we need to be interdisciplinary right now. We need to be able to challenge each other and talk to um, people from different fields about ways to address the same types of problems from different angles. Because that is really what's going to push the work that we do from being very siloed into a lot, right? These more robust, arguably harder to harder to address issues. Yet, just because it's hard, that shouldn't keep us from from trying to to do some more interdisciplinary work. Okay, so I would want to go back to that in a minute, but before that. If I keep on the issue of interdisciplinarity, I'm using multiple methodologies. But before we do that, if I go with the sort of um, you know the journey over time, um, you are at Hopkins. You are doing a PhD in public health. You're interested in in communication issues. You tap into the communication networks. Uh, you know people like Sandra. Then you go tap into the digital. Uh, scholarship methods at Oxford. Sandra had been at Oxford before, so there is yeah. sort of that, that uh, journey there. When it, came, when it comes to choosing a place uh, to apply for, you know, your your position as a professor, did you look, why, why communication? Did you look at, you know, public health as well? Uh, did you look across? How, how was the decision making for you? Yeah, that, thank you. That's a really great question. Um, I actually was looking at two, again, I still wanted to go into academia. So that wasn't the question. It was how am I going to get there? Mm -hmm. um, and I was juggling between this position that I currently have at Rutgers, um, knowing that it's a completely different discipline with different perspectives. Um, or uh, I was actually considering a postdoc with the National Cancer Institute, which would have been more of my traditional public health, health communication route. And I, I went back and forth on those two because I think that they're both great ways to get to the same end goal of, of being a mentor, of being a scholar, of being a researcher. And I decided to go to Rutgers 
because well, first I would, I think it's interesting in, in making sense of my own trajectory that I have been in multiple roles where I've been at this intersection of two different areas or a bridge between two different institutions. And I've always, um, I've always felt that those kinds of environments are very stimulating mm -hmm. for me to not just ascribe myself to how I've been trained, but to think about how to convey messages to different audiences. So when I was thinking about going back to Rutgers, well, one, it's my alma mater, which was just life being, you know, serendipity. <laughs> Um, this girl from Puerto Rico being like, oh, I'm going back to Rutgers. What? This, this is not what I had intended. But um, the, the Department of Communication there has a lot of interdisciplinarity. And they have very strong health communication programs, in addition to being part of a larger university infrastructure that has a cancer center, that has public health that has Latino studies. So it just felt like a very robust academic home where I could continue to bring my skill sets into a new department and get challenged by my peers and colleagues to incorporate new ways of approaching public health scholarship from a communication perspective. Um, and that like totality for me, in addition to everyone there is awesome. It's a, it's a fantastic um, academic home with a lot of um, very creative research going on. So it just felt like the right place for me to start my endeavors um, with a foot in both, right? Calm and, and public health. Okay, very interesting. And now on, on being, you know, on, on, on the pleasures and perils of, of doing interdisciplinary work, right? I mean, it, it seems that you, are, you have a natural affinity for building bridges and connecting, you know, communities and ideas. Um, and you have emphasized uh, many of the positives of that. Um, are there any challenges? Of course. <laughs> I, from a personal perspective, I think that one of the biggest challenges even comes from the writing perspective, right? We're, at, we're you know, we're researchers, we're academics, we, we write for a living, we, we share our research, we disseminate it, and writing for different journals, different disciplines is, is very different. <laughs> Valga la redundancia, as we say in Spanish, right? It's part in the redundancy, but um, the way that we talk about our work is different. And sometimes that, that mental, and I, I think it, it, it's exhausting to do that flip-flop of, wait, who's my audience again? What about the research do I want to highlight for them that's going to contribute to the discussions that are being had in this particular field? Um, that juggling is a little bit complex sometimes, as is um, even different academic homes and systems, right? Soft money versus hard money, grant research versus just doing research within more of a teaching environment, right? Those are things that are that are very um, different approaches, um, and and it requires a little bit of time management, um, and and lastly. I think a really challenging thing, which 
I don't know about you, Pablo, but I, I feel like the, the fields in general, like academia is, is moving towards more of this publicly engaged realm of work, but publicly engaged work and community-based research takes time and, and it requires trust to be established and that is, it takes resources. So it organically means that it's going to take a lot longer to get some work done because the priorities are no longer in your hands. They're in the community's hands and you need to learn how to leverage those conversations between your right professional and community facing work. And, um, and that takes a lot of good mentoring and a lot of um, patience and a lot of planning. So um, I think those are the things that are maybe less, less spoken about um, that are challenging, but I wouldn't change it. It's incredibly rewarding. I hear you um, totally, but can, can we go a little bit deeper into the issue of writing, for instance, right? Um, you, know, you have sort of focus on the, on the challenges of writing for different constituencies. Mm -hmm. What are some do's and don'ts that have worked for you? In regards to like journal, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that sitting down, so one thing that's a little bit different um, for in, between disciplines is that public health is a lot more team-based um, than, than traditional communication research, right? So you tend to really be writing in teams a lot more in public health. And one thing that I try to do is identify early on, what is the journal that I am going to be submitting to? What are the three journals, right? Because there's, there's, a, there's a high chance that the first one is gonna be like, no, thanks. Um, we're gonna pass this time. So identifying those before the writing begins, I think is crucial. Um, for anyone that's listening that is in the PhD dissertation process, what helped me the most in making sure that I wrote my manuscripts and, and, and centered myself because it is a very lonely process. It's, you start, there's a lot of imposter syndrome and self-doubt and crying and all that stuff. Um, I aligned each of my papers with a conference that was coming up. So I made sure that each of my papers had an abstract already. So I already knew what I was going to be analyzing because I had a conference in mind which then helped identify an appropriate journal and write for that journal. Um, I think sometimes people start writing without really knowing where it's going to, and that's where it gets really complex and complicated. Um, and then another do is don't be afraid to ask for people to read your work before it's done. No, one, um, no one's going to write it perfect the first time. Um, and if you can get advice at different stages from different people that you trust, that's really gonna make your writing stronger because there's something that you might be writing that you think is very clear. And when someone else reads that, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You need to spell this out even more, right? So not waiting until, it's never gonna be perfect, but not waiting until the end to then have someone look at it and, and give you feedback that might feel a little tense. Um, that's also something that I try to, to abide by. Excellent. And then, it Yet another form of communication happens when you do work that, as you mentioned, has a strong public facing component when you do public engagement work. 
um, which is a significant motivation for you, it seems to me, based on what you've shared with us, yeah. um, intellectually and also in terms of your own positionality as a Latina, right? So you, you recently testified before Congress, um, which is not an audience that many of us have ever had an opportunity uh, to, to address. And um, that is very different from the audience that reads our papers. Yes. <laughs> Can you share how, how was that process and what you learned from it? Oh my, that was... There's, there's a line and you, whoever's listening, you can't see me right now, but I talk with my hands a lot and I am drawing a line out. There is a line of emotions and I had, I experienced every single one of them during those two and a half weeks where I was preparing for my testimony um, for the Senate. Um, at first, I, there's a little, a little tidbit about me. When I get very, very nervous, I start laughing. And, but it's this laughter that's like, it hurts my stomach because I'm just laughing for nonstop. And I remember when I got the, the formal letter from the Senate <laughs> inviting me, I just, I just started laughing for like three minutes and I was talking to my sister. She's like, you are so weird. I'm like, this is crazy. Um, so I, I I also remember like going through everything and thinking there's so much to say and I only have five minutes to say it. How do I identify what those, you know, three talking points are and, and distill them in a way that's very simple. So um, I, took, I took work that I had already written and I, I do that a lot. I, I start with something that I've already written and then I take it from there to kind of get into that mental space of writing and editing. Um, and then I, you know, I, I, I talked to my sister about it and I would explain to her people that I know aren't involved in, in our academic writing, um, to, to make sure that they understand what I'm saying. And, and, and cause right. My audience is senators in this case that, that just didn't, they, they don't talk our language, right. They're there. You need to give them very bite-sized pieces of information and highlight what's important. So I did a lot of practicing. I am not going to lie. I did a lot of crying. And I think that it's important to say these things because sometimes people, um, especially younger, you know, early researchers, early academics, people that are pursuing a doctorate degree now, um, we don't talk enough about the difficult parts. We don't talk enough about, you know, the no's, all the no's that came before the yeses. Um, so I, I always think it's important to highlight that. Um, but I was, you know, I was very nervous. I practiced a lot. And then, um, and that day just, I think that doing it on Zoom, I'm not gonna lie, made it a little less intimidating. I had a little post-it note next to my computer that said, it's just a Zoom call. Um, <laughs> and so I had that there and I had, you know, my points and, um, and, but like you were saying earlier, Pablo, for me, this is the work that I do, I do because I'm very passionate about. Um, so for me, it's very important that, yes, as a scientist, I'm there to deliver evidence-based information. I'm there to deliver um, my experiences based on my empirical work, not just my opinions about things, um, but also to do so in a way that's going to resonate. So if I can give an example based on my work as a community health educator, 
based on a conversation that I had with a research participant, I am going to give an example in that capacity um, because that sticks, right? Those personal stories stick. Um, and I think I got that from my, my years as a health educator where I need to be able to look at someone in the community that doesn't understand how DNA replicates and how it mutates and then leads to cancer. So I have to grab a piece of paper and, and a photocopy and show them when it copies wrong, it, it, you know, you don't get all the instructions, right? Like, so I'm used to kind of thinking of how can I convey this easily? Um, and that was really rewarding. I will say once the hearing was over, it just, I was very excited for, for several hours. I was just like, oh my gosh, I did it. <laughs> I did it. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I want to share this. After after the pandemic started, right? I graduated. I didn't. I didn't get my my in person graduation, which for me was a very big deal. I'm the first person in my family to get a PhD, um, and my grandma was going to fly from Puerto Rico, and my family was going to fly. And I remember um, when I got into Hopkins, the first thing I did was I googled their regalia, like ah, what's the colors, right? I was so excited. So not having that experience was, it, 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 you know, it was hard. And then moving and transitioning into a new position as a, as a faculty member remotely was also um, full of challenges. And my work, which focused on misinformation related to cancer was felt very relevant to the times. Um, but I was also very tired and I didn't, in at the moment, I, I kept feeling, I wish I could be doing more right now with COVID, but I'm tired and I have to do these new roles. And, um, and I felt a little bit defeated sometimes. And in, in, in all honesty, seeing the work have a huge impact in conversations that need to be had um, and show to senators and policymakers, this isn't just about COVID. This has been happening and we need to address these issues from a preventive kind of perspective, from a prevention, not reaction perspective, if we are to avoid these situations from happening again. Um, and that felt really rewarding to know that sometimes your work, you might, you might, I say this because sometimes you might think like, oh, this doesn't matter. Why am I doing this research? It matters. It matters. And especially if you're very passionate about it and you're doing work that, that you know at, at its core is going to contribute to whatever group it is that you want to work with. Um, for me, it's the Latino community. I'm from Puerto Rico. Um, then that was just, I think that was the, the, the most rewarding part of the entire experience, that the work that I put in really, really mattered. Excellent. Congratulations also. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I mean, well deserved. So, so another aspect of your research program that is uh, quite unique is the fact that um, you not only are crossing fields and you're crossing audiences, you're also bridging across methodologies, coming from a training that tends to prioritize quantitative methods. I mean, you use in a central way qualitative methods, right? I mean, not as an, you know, okay, do some interviews, then build a survey instrument, but it's central. I mean, stories and storytelling 
is central to what you do and it connects to your positionality, where you come from, etc. So can you elaborate a little bit on, on your experience of bridging you know, methodologies, integrating them, uh, what you gain from this, and uh, again, challenges uh, that you have encountered you know, and how you solve them? Yeah, thank, that's a great question. Um, like you said, for me, I actually, I, I started in biotechnology, right? Very quantitative work. Um, and when I was getting my master's I, I, at, at Emory, I had the pleasure of, of working with some lovely mentors whom introduced me to more qualitative approaches to understanding public health issues. And I thought, you know, this is really important. It's really important that um, we don't just quantify, problematize, but understand why why people do things, why they don't do things, how it really impacts them, how they make sense of the world. Um, it just resonated, like you said, with my this positionality as a Latina, as a Puerto Rican, as a, as a woman, and, and, and wanting to engage with people through, through sharing and telling stories. Um, when I started my doctoral studies, um, I was very intrigued that a lot of the work had this emphasis on quantifying engagement as a like, a comment, or share. We need to show that people are liking and liking and sharing and clicking. And it was like, this is, yes, that's important. I'm not going to disregard that because it is a, a visual measure of how people are um, in, integrating information into their ecosystem. But I kept saying, my grandpa doesn't do that. And he calls me and he tells me about all these things that he sees online, right? And I kept thinking, you know, if we are to not just problematize, but solve, we really, really need to understand how people are making sense of their online realities. Acknowledging that they aren't just online realities that are excluded from our offline lives, right? They're, they're, our online is our offline, right? They're, they're integrated, they influence each other. And now I feel like four years ago, it was harder to explain that to people. And now people are like, yeah, I get it. Of course, we've seen it, we've lived it with this pandemic. So all of that is to say that I really wanted to make sure that I was looking from a quantitative, right? Like a content analysis, more objective perspective, the content that people are engaging with and the robustness of that, but complementing it with conversations that allow us to interpret how people are actually navigating these, these different environments. And in, this, in the case of my research thus far, Facebook and cancer misinformation and how people engage with content, the role that the share of information has in whether or not they trust it and why. And that has really shown to me and, and, and uncovered not only that there's inter-platform connectivity that we need to, we need, I believe that we need to stop looking at just media effects, trying to quantify media effects from this platform and this platform, they're not additive. They permeate. They really, I, I might get something from Facebook and now with Facebook's 
inter-platform connectivity, it's going to be even more important to understand that people can just share that through WhatsApp. They might not even realize that they're sharing it through a different platform. They can't discern that it came from Facebook, et cetera, right? So there's that component, but then also the meaning that people make out of it and, and, and the stories that they tell themselves in their head to kind of use that to reinforce information that they are engaging with and mis maybe even misperceptions, right? And how does that link to our cultural values and, and things that are a part of our core identity? Um, you can't get that without an interview. You can't get that without talking to people and trying to make sense of the totality. So this methodology that I, that I wanted to explore allows for that. It's messy, right? It's a lot of data. It took a lot of sitting down and saying, okay, I have all this data, which I need to de-identify. I need to make sure that everything's fine. I need to match it with my interviews. I need to make checklists to make sure that I'm that I'm not losing anything. I need to come up with contingency plans if my audio fails and the computer screen fails, et cetera. But then I have to like navigate all of those data points onto a platform. In my case, I use MaxQDA because it was very resourceful. It just allows for images, videos, and a lot of different type of data, which is what I was looking at. Um, but really that allows me to tell a bigger story. So now that I have a big a, a sense of what's happening at a broader level, I can start delving into deeper things and look at processes and theory building that takes into account our plurality, our you know transnational identities. Um, I do research in English and in Spanish. I have to be able to flip back and forth with my with my you know audience um, researchers, and um, and I think that's another challenge of doing this kind of work. Uh, you need to find researchers and, 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 and students that are also bilingual and, and, and understand the cultural nuances, right? There's something about being a part of a culture that, that there's pros and cons, right, of um, making sure that you're not over applying, you know, a certain type of norm or, or, or imposing a norm onto your sample because you're a part of the group and you think you understand something that you don't. But at the same time, there is that rapport building, that understanding. I remember having participants look at me and within five minutes, they were like showing me a scar or telling me a story about when they're, because they, they were like, you get it, you understand, right? So they're, they're more forthcoming with their, their stories and why they do what they do. Um, and all of those things are very rewarding. And I think that mixed methods is a way to really start navigating a lot of these issues that we see in, in right misinformation right now. Excellent. I'm building on that, um, the issue of bilingualism. Um, you know, the field of communication and media studies in general, but in the US in particular, is a field in which English dominates, right? <clears throat> um, yet, um, in the US only, I mean, there are more than 60 people who speak Spanish more than 40, 60 million, sorry, not 60, 60 million, more than 40 million, for about 43 million for whom that is their preferred language. Um, the Latino population in the US is nearing 19% now, but that's not proportional to the representation uh, of Latino people in academia, in particular, uh, you know, among the professorial ranks. Um, it's not the representation of Spanish in the conversations in academia, right? So, what can we do 
to, to fast forward a process of greater diversity uh, in academia. Yeah, that, thank you. Um, and this is something that I, I think is incredibly important. As I said earlier in my interview, um, I've been, I've worked very hard, but I've also had opportunities. Um, I've had the opportunity to have lovely and, and wonderful advisors and mentors to guide me through my career trajectory, none of which were Latinas. Um, and one of the things that I, I've always wanted to be and now am is that for undergrads, for master's students, for PhD students. And I don't take that lightly. I think it's instrumental that we, um, that we demonstrate to the, you know, upcoming workforce and students that they can do it too, because I did it, right? I, I look like you, I come from, my, my family's from Puerto Rico. I, I'm the first one in my family to go into academia. My mom was a nurse, my dad was in the military. Um, you know, my grandma graduated high school, my great grandma barely finished the seventh grade. So I, I understand the importance of having those role models remind you that you are able to get to that level as well. So I think that from a right faculty perspective and, a, and an institutional perspective, which I think that we are starting to see a lot more of, um, hopefully right actual, not just lip service, but actual increases in diversity, inclusion and equity within um, institution, academic institutions. But, we need to know that a lot of students might be coming from backgrounds where they didn't have certain opportunities. So we need to give, the, give them to them. We need to invest in more students who have those, those different perspectives and, and incorporate that into the classroom and let them know that there is a space for them within academia, higher education, et cetera. So that requires definitely hiring more diverse faculty, um, hiring faculty that does work with diverse communities, right? The diversity comes in, in, in different ways, um, but then also knowing that you need to invest in these students. From an early age, I, I mentioned my, that's how I started. I had opportunities given to me and I, and I took them because I just, was lucky enough that someone said, hey, check this out. We need to make that available, readily available to people so that they are able to see all of the different options they have. Um, and, and as a Latina, I can't wait to have more Latina students and you know, um, help, help them get grants, get funding opportunities. Um, there are a myriad of, for those of us that are in health communication, National Institutes of Health has a myriad of different mechanisms to include diversity into training and scholarship. And we need to be looking into those different ways of securing funding and research for, um, for underrepresented groups. Excellent. So, so then if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish, 
about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change. What would you then wish for? You know, I think that, like I said, I, I'm, I'm coming in from a, from a public health kind of perspective. And I think that emphasizing the importance and the need of interdisciplinary work right now is crucial. And when I say interdisciplinary work, it's not just about different disciplines, but also different perspectives and different life experiences, right? Like it's just kind of, I'm, I'm tying everything that I, I've been talking about together. Um, it is crucial that we continue to think beyond the confines of, of what the field has done thus far. We need theories that incorporate culture. We need research that incorporates culture and multilingual avenues. We need research that's transnational and interdisciplinary so that we are applying new methodologies. Um, so I really do think that at the core, if we can start moving towards this interdisciplinary kind of training, that's going to move um, the field forward and in, in, in ways that are going to address the complex issues that we're facing in society right now. All right, excellent. Thank you very much, Anaira, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you uh, to all of our listeners for staying with us uh, to the end. And uh, I want to invite everybody to check in the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.